If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 38 this morning. So here we are again at another challenging passage. We've seen a handful of these recently, by God's grace, and according to his will. We had one back in chapter 34 when Moses talked about the defilement of Dinah at the hands of Shechem. And then again in chapter 36, as we dealt with all of the descendants of Esau. And now in chapter 38, we get the granddaddy of them all, the sordid tale of Judah and Tamar. What a mess this family is. What a mess. Not only is this one of the most sordid tales in all of Scripture, but it is also one of the most explicitly graphic ones as well. And yet this is God's word, his holy and infallible word. And just as we have quoted the last couple of times, we've we've dealt with a challenging passage, so we will quote again today, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. That means breathed out by God. That's why we call it the breath of God. All scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of, man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so because this is inspired, because it is this holy and inspired word, and because we know that there's a reason for it, we, because it's inspired, we, we know that God does not give us these kinds of graphic, graphic and explicit descriptions of man's depravity without reason. He doesn't do this gratuitously. There is a purpose and a, a reason to it, and chapter 38 of Genesis is no exception. Because it's inspired, because we know there's a reason for it, church, we make no apology for it. And we don't take it lightly, but we also don't skip over it. So we will read every word So without any further description, let us hear from the Lord this morning as he speaks to our church. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he wastes the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. 
When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took the hand and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made of yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, we, at times like this, we thank you for your word in faith. On the surface, Father, we don't understand why this passage is here and why you would have us spend time as a church walking through this. But Father, we do believe that when you said all scripture is inspired by you, you meant all scripture, including Genesis chapter 38. And so, Father, we pray that you would extend to us your grace as we walk through this chapter this morning. We ask, Father, that you would give us the attentiveness that it deserves. Father, may we not be distracted by anything, including technology. May we attend to this reading with an understanding coming through the Holy Spirit. And, Father, may you help us interpret this and apply it to our lives for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this chapter, Genesis chapter 38, is, among other things, a detailed and explicit description of man's depravity, the depravity of man. And the explicit nature of these descriptions shocks our sensibilities. And I think that's on purpose. That is not to be um, confused with being something that's on accident. God does this on purpose because the grace of God is never seen as being more extravagant than when it's beheld against the backdrop of the shocking nature of our sin, of man's sin. And so as shocked as we are by the sin and the immorality that we see in the characters in this chapter, we ought to be equally shocked at how God uses both the sin and the sinner to accomplish his perfect and sovereign plan through them so that he might bring about his son to redeem not just a nation and not just a family, but to redeem all sinners who would come to him in faith. There are four sections to this narrative, and the first is found in the first 11 verses where we see the wickedness of Judah's family. We're told in verse 1 that he went down from his brothers, which tells us that he left home. He left his father, he left his brothers, and he left his family. He went somewhere else. J- Jacob's family is fragmenting. Joseph has already been sold into slavery. He- he's on his way down to Egypt as we left him at the end of chapter 37. Jacob, of course, thinks that he's died, but Joseph has gone away, ironically, at the suggestion of Judah, who we're talking about this morning. And now Judah has left home. He left his father, he left his brothers, and he's heading out. Maybe he's feeling guilty for having suggested to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. Maybe he's feeling guilty for betraying his younger brother. Or maybe he's just at that stage of life where he just feels like he needs to come out from underneath mom and dad and their rules and their restrictions. But for whatever reason, regardless, he has left home. He is isolating himself from his community. And friend, that is never a good sign. It's not a good sign in our life when we isolate ourselves from community and it portends badly on, J- on Judah and what is going to come for him. In the narrative here, he appears to know exactly where he, he's going. He goes down to Adullam and he meets up with his buddy Hira, the Adullamite. And we're told that when he gets there, he sees the daughter of a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Oddly, we're never given the name of Judah's wife. All we know about her is that she's a Canaanite, being the daughter of a Canaanite. And that upon seeing her, Judah takes her to be his wife. The fact that she's a Canaanite tells us that Judah is disregarding God's instruction to his family not to marry a Canaanite. Back in chapter 24, as Abraham is looking for a a wife for his son Isaac, he sends his servant back to Padanaram, say, go back to my homeland and look for a wife there. But he explicitly warns his servant, do not take a wife for my son from the Canaanites. 
A few verses later, when, when in turn Isaac is looking for, a son, looking for a wife for his son, Jacob, he tells Jacob, don't take a wife from the Canaanites. Go back to Paddan Aram, to my family's homeland, and take a wife from there. Indeed, when Jacob's brother Esau marries a Canaanite, marries a couple of Canaanites, we looked at that point and we saw that that was an indication of his waywardness away from God's plan. And that was the beginning of his immorality. Later when the Israelites will cross the Jordan with Joshua at the helm, God will direct Joshua to drive out the Canaanites from the land and to get rid of their gods and their Asherah poles and their idolatry. He tells them not to intermarry with the Canaanites so that their beliefs and their practices with the false gods of Canaan would not corrupt their worship of Yahweh. And so we have Judah here in chapter 38 doing just that, disregarding that instruction from Yahweh and marrying a Canaanite. The other reason that this is problematic, what happens when he gets to Adullam, is that the wording that is used here indicates that that what motivated Judah to marry this Canaanite woman was purely physical attraction. We're told that Judah saw this woman. He saw, with his eyes, he saw this woman, this this daughter of a Canaanite. And so he took her and made him his wife. Apparently he liked what he saw and he wanted what he saw and so he took what he saw. This should remind us of what attracted Shechem to Dinah back in chapter 38, 34. Shechem saw her and seized her. And while there's no indication that Judah here um, was physically assaultive of this Canaanite woman, clearly the same thing motivated him. He liked what he saw. He wanted what he saw, and so he took it. These first five verses give us a picture of Judah as a man who does what he wants. He wants to be lonely, and so he leaves his father and his brothers, and he goes away from home. He isolates himself. He sees this daughter of Shua, and though she is a Canaanite, he sees her, he likes what he sees, he wants what he sees, and so he takes what he sees, and he makes her his wife. Judah, at this point in his life, is gripped by self-indulgence. He does whatever pleases him. So he marries his Canaanite, and in rapid succession, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And in verses 6 through 11, we see then that the sons were quickly told in verse 7 that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Judah gets a wife for his firstborn Ur, and, and, and that's where we're introduced to Tamar, this Canaanite. But, but Ur is wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord puts him to death. We're not told what what Ur did to make him wicked, but it was wicked enough that the Lord put him to death. And so the depravity of Judah continues with his sons now. But then Onan, Judah's second son, is called upon to fulfill the obligation of what's known as leveret marriage. Leveret marriage which was later codified in Deuteronomy 25 to be part of the Mosaic law, stated that when a, man mar- a married man died, and he, and he died childless, he didn't have any children, and his wife survived him, 
then it was the obligation of his brother, the next son, to marry his widow and to have children by him. And in that case, those children would not be his. The, the, the firstborn in particular would not be the son of the second brother. It would be the son of the first brother who had died. And so he would get the inheritance. So such was the obligation now of Onan, Judah's second son. And so Judah tells him in verse 8, um, he instructs Onan to take her to be his wife. And as he says, perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. So Onan thinks to himself, now wait a second, if I do this, then these children won't be mine, they'll be my brother's. And, and, and I won't get the inheritance, instead, they will, and they won't be mine. And so Onan apparently didn't care for that arrangement, and so in his greed and in his selfishness, he did not fulfill his duty. And the graphic nature of the description shows us that Onan went through with the public appearance of Leveret marriage, but he did not fulfill the duty of Leveret marriage. Maybe perhaps he was just enamored by the physical attractiveness of Tamar, learning that from his father, who married because of physical attractiveness alone. And he just wanted to fulfill his physical desires. Maybe that was the reason for this. Or maybe, or maybe he was just all about public image and public appearance. And so he, whatever the reason is, he, he went through and he fulfilled the the, the public appearance of Leveret marriage, but he did not fulfill his obligation behind bedroom doors. And his fate turned out to be the same of his older brother, Ur. We're told in verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. A, a, parenthetical to this, lest we think that this idea of God putting people to death because of their sinfulness is just an Old Testament thing and that this is, this is like the Old Testament judgment and wrath kind of thing and the New Testament's all about love and grace and mercy. Let us not forget Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament who withheld from the Lord and they were put to death on the spot. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. And so they're put to death for their wickedness here. So now Judah's first two sons have died and Judah's not a dummy here. He puts two and two together, and he's like, okay, the common denominator here is Tamar. Ur married Tamar, and he died. Onan married Tamar, and he died. So he's not about to let his only remaining son, Shelah, marry this woman. And so what does he do? He sends her home. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then Moses interjects here for us and gives us the motivation for Judah sending her to her father. At the end of verse 11, he says, For he feared that he, Shelah, that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And so we close this first section of chapter 38, these first 11 verses, with Judah deceiving his own daughter-in-law. He tells her, go back to your father, live with your father, until Shelah, his only remaining son, was old enough, who, who now was just a boy, 
So remain there until he's old enough to marry. And so the understanding for Tamar was that when Shelah was old enough to marry, that she would be given to him as his wife. But we know from the end of verse 11 that Judah never intended to follow through on that commitment. And he just kind of he pacified Tamar and got rid of her by sending her home. And, and we should note here before, before going on that this put Tamar in a very vulnerable and dangerous position. She's no longer a virgin. She has already been married to Ur and Onan. Judah tells her to live with her father as a widow, which means that she would not be able to remarry. And above all of that, most importantly, because of Judah's promise that she will marry the youngest son, Shelah, she is effectively legally betrothed to Shelah. So she's trapped. She's trapped. And she's dependent on Judah fulfilling his promise to be able to marry Shelah when Shelah gets old enough to do so. Otherwise, she won't have any offspring and she won't have any means of supporting herself as a widow. A very vulnerable and scary position for a woman to be put in in that day and in that time in that culture. So the stage is set then, obviously, for Tamar's uh, extreme measures and deceptiveness that we find in the next few verses. But before we go on from verse the, the first section here, we should note that, that Moses causes us to conclude at the end of these first 11 verses that this family is royally and totally messed up. This is a messed up family. We're, we're I believe, meant to be disgusted by their depravity and their immorality. The explicit nature of this is intended to disgust us with this messed up family. Judah's self-preservation, his self-indulgences, the wickedness of his sons Ur and Onan, the deceptiveness and meanness of Judah to deceive Tamar and leave her in such a vulnerable and dangerous position. And, and, we, and we ought to ask ourselves, how could God use a family like this? And furthermore, why would he use a family like this? Now let's move on to the second section in verses 12 through 23 where we see the scheming and deception of Tamar. Verse 12 begins with, In the course of time, which is many, many years later, Shelah is now grown up. He's of marrying age. And about this time, Judah's wife, the Canaanite, the daughter of Shua, dies, and he mourns for her. And after mourning for her, we're told in verse 12 that he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers. Now, some of the commentators that I read this week noted that this annual time of sheepstival, where there was much feasting and where much wine was known to flow quite freely. So if Judah was inebriated because of the sheep shearing festival, this may help to explain why he doesn't recognize her when Tamar then dresses up as a prostitute, as we see in the passage, and position, positions herself in town in hopes of attracting the eye of Judah. Now again, we need to be sympathetic here and understand why Tamar did this. She had no hope of marrying Shelah. We're told that he is of marrying age now. He's older. And at the end of verse 14, we, we see that she concludes she had not been given to him in marriage. 
Judah's not fulfilling his promise. I've got no hope. I'm trapped. I can't marry anybody else. I'm not going to marry Shelah. What am I going to do? Not only was she not going to marry Shelah, but because she was betrothed to him, she can't marry anybody else. She had no means of supporting herself, and indeed the prospect of her future was very bleak. Now listen, she is equally sinful in this charade that she pulls off here. No doubt about that, but at least that helps us to understand where she was coming from because of the position that Judah had put her in. So Judah comes back from this full day of sheep shearing and feasting and drinking, and he sees this woman. He doesn't recognize her. She's got her face covered. He's three sheets to the wind, and he thinks her to be a prostitute, and so he propositions her. So again, we see the immorality and the wickedness and the foolishness of Judah here, living by the rule of do whatever I want to do, do whatever pleases me, whatever makes me happy. So upon being propositioned by Judah, which is what she wanted, is what she was aiming for and scheming for, Tamar then says, well, what what will you give me? In other words, what are you going to pay me for this encounter? And Judah says, well, I'll give you a goat. Apparently that that was a fair trade for that in that day and time. But noticing that he has no goat with her, he's like, well, what are you going to give me instead until that? What, what, what are you going to pledge to me? What collateral will you give me until you bring me the goat? And he says, well, what do you want? What do you want as a pledge? And she's ready, right? She's ready with an answer. I want your signet. I want your cord. And I want the staff that's in your hand. Three things that were very identifiably his, Judas. The signet would have been his sign. It was probably on a ring. Perhaps it was on the cord as well. But it identified him as Judah. His cord would have been around his neck, and it would have been a very identifiable. And the staff was handcrafted, customized for Judah. Everybody would know that was Judah's staff. And so these three things that she knows, she asks for explicitly, are are verifiable identifiers of Judah. If this story were being told today, the guy would leave his his driver's license, his keychain, and his passport, perhaps. Things that are very identifiable, his. And so he agrees to that. He gives that to her, and, and she, having completed the business end of things, they have their encounter, and then Tamar quickly leaves. She puts back on, as it says, the garments of her widowhood, and she goes back to her father's house. And we're told at the end of verse 18 that she has conceived. In verses 20 through 23, Judah then sends payment. He sends the goat by way of his good buddy Hira the Adulamite in order to get the pledges back. Bring the goat, you'll get the signet, the cord, and the staff back. But as the story goes, he doesn't find her. She's not there. Obviously, she's returned home. They ask around town, and they say, hey, there's never been a prostitute that operates around here. And so he tells his friend, the Adulamite, he's like, let her keep those pledges, or else we will become a laughingstock. The third section that occurs in verses 24 through 26, where Judah's scandal now is exposed publicly, happens three months later. Tamar is now three months pregnant, and she's beginning to show She can't hide it anymore. And so word gets back to Judah that his daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant, which means that 
she's committed adultery because, again, legally she is betrothed to Shelah, his youngest son. And so what does the end of verse 24? Bring her out and let her be burned. And so she's coming out to be burned to death because she's been caught in adultery. And as Moses is writing this story, you kind of get the picture that they're, they're bringing her out to be burned, to be judged for her adultery. And as they bring her to the pit to be burned, at the very last moment, it seems, she holds out her hand and he says, hey, by the way, if you want to catch the guy who did this, here's his stuff, his signet, his cord, and his staff. Identify that man who owns these, and that's the guy who did this to me. And then we're told in verse 26 that Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Judah here comes to grips with his own sin and immorality. He admits his wrongdoing. He claims that Tamar, who dressed up as a prostitute, and deceived him into sleeping with her, he claims that she is more righteous than I. It appears, at least on the surface here, that he is beginning to show sorrow over his actions. He's he's humbled to the core here. This, This very public humiliation reveals him for who he was, a sinner who had only been thinking about himself all along. And his exclamation here that Tamar is more righteous than I shows that he's beginning at least to show signs of sorrow over his actions. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He says that worldly sorrow hates the consequences of sin, hates getting caught, hates the punishment, hates what you get as a result of rebellion and sin, whereas Godly sorrow, godly sorrow hates not just the consequences, but the sin itself. Godly sorrow hates the sin, and because it hates the sin, it turns from the sin. It it repents, causes repentance. Paul says godly sorrow leads to repentance, while worldly sorrow only leads to death. And we should be reminded here, church, that through Christ, God has made a way for sinners like us who stand under the weight and burden of our own sin, can be rid of that weight. Not by our own efforts to try to lift that burden off of us, but only through Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross, achieving for us a righteousness that we could not have gained on our own. So I wonder, I wonder, are you bearing under the weight of sin this morning? If you are, you want to be out from underneath that weight, it's, it's not going to happen through your own efforts to try to lift that weight off. It's only going to happen by you surrendering to Christ and trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from your sin and the judgment that you deserve because of your sin. Trust in Christ alone to save you. The fourth section of chapter 38 in verses 27 through 30 reveals to us that the line of promise continues. The line of the covenant promises that God has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
are now continuing and it's just extravagantly gracious how it continues. Tamar's problem all along in chapter 38 is her childlessness. She doesn't have a child. She doesn't have offspring. It didn't happen with Ur. It didn't happen with Onan. It's not going to happen with Shelah. But God sovereignly allows it to happen through this illicit union with her father-in-law, Judah. So she has this birth, and as we've come to recognize in the book of Genesis, most of these births are not normal. They're strange, and so we have another strange birth story here. First of all, it's a multiple birth, which is not altogether that strange. That's becoming more and more common in the story. But as she's about to have the babies, one of them puts their hand out. That's kind of weird. Puts his hand out. And so the midwife grabs the hand, ties a thread around it, which is actually not a bad idea to identify the firstborn. Maybe we should have done that with our twins, you know, or else maybe that maybe would have prevented the nursery from switching them up later. I always tease Susan that that's what they did. <laughs> but, but they tie a thread around the hand, and, and then he pulls his hand back. And the brother comes out, and the brother that comes out doesn't have a thread tied around his hand, and that brother is named Perez. And then the other brother comes out that does have the thread tied around his hand, and his name is Zerah. And so we see yet again this cycle of the younger serving the older. Or, excuse me, the older serving the younger. And so, um, again, another odd birth story. Now, before we um, look at some of the um, lessons from this passage of scripture. I want to show you how incredible God's grace is. We've established how messed up this family is, right? Judah disregarding God's instructions and marrying a Canaanite. Ur's wickedness. Onan's wickedness. Judah's dishonesty in promising his youngest to Tamar and withholding him. Tamar's deception of Judah, dressing up as a prostitute. Judah paying for sex with a prostitute that turned out to be his daughter-in-law. I mean, Jerry Springer has nothing on Judah and his immediate family. And yet, as shocking as their sin is, God's grace, as it turns out, is even more shocking. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Flip over to the right. Go through the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua and Judges after Judges of the book of, of Ruth. Nestled right in there between Judges and 1 Samuel. At the end of that story, Ruth chapter 4 after the story of Ruth and Boaz, which is a wonderful narrative of God's redemption in and of itself. But at the end of that story, the writer of Ruth, which is traditionally assumed to be Samuel, the prophet Samuel, he gives a genealogy in order to show how Ruth in the story, this Moabitess, is connected to King David. Incredible. But in doing so, he goes back even further than Ruth. Look at verse 18 and following of Ruth chapter 4. Now these are the generations of who? Perez. 
And who is Perez again? The firstborn of the twins that come from the union of Tamar who dressed up as a prostitute and had this illicit union with her own father-in-law, that Perez, that Perez. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Abimenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. You know, in the middle of the story, in the middle of the time that Genesis 38 is taking place, that story is taking place, one might conclude about Perez, nothing good is ever going to come from that family. Perez is never going to amount to anything. But here he is, recorded for eons on the pages of Scripture in the lineage of the second greatest king Israel has ever known, King David. But it gets better than that. Now turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his gospel account also with a genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus. And I'm just bear with me. I'm going to read through this entire genealogy here because I want you to I want you to see who's included here. Beginning in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez. Now hold on. Hold on. Judah's here. Ju- Judah is in the lineage of the greatest king of Israel, Jesus. Not Joseph. And we're going to spend the rest of Genesis looking at the life of Joseph. And certainly the the blessings of Israel come through Joseph, but the covenant promise comes through Judah. Judah, the one who married a Canaanite, the, the one who had... This affair with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. This Judah is in the lineage of King David. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar's in here. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. So he borrows directly from the, the genealogy in Ruth. But he has the, has the wherewithal to include Rahab, who is a prostitute. And then he goes on. David, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who's Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and the brothers at at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Ebiad, Ebiad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There he is. 
Now, there's, there's a handful of lessons that I want to pull from this, but the first is that God uses messed up people. God uses messed up people. I'm so glad that God doesn't whitewash the biblical characters. He, he doesn't whitewash even our heroes of the faith as if they were picture-perfect no, indeed, beginning with, with Adam and Eve and then Noah and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, and on and on and on. These are royally and deeply flawed individuals. And yet God in His grace and in His mercy chose to use them to accomplish His purposes and His plan, not just for the nation of Israel, but for a nation that would in turn, through the Christ, be a blessing to all nations of the earth. Just look at some of the names uh, that, are, that represent for us noteworthy sinners. They're all sinners. But, but look, at, look at some of them. We've already mentioned Judah. We've talked about him. Tamar, we've talked about her. She dressed up as a prostitute. Rahab, she was a prostitute. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah murdered. His son Solomon was infamous for the number of wives that he had, disobeying God. And many of those wives were, in fact, Canaanites. Led to his downfall and the, and the dividing of the kingdom. Another king in here, King Ahaz, he was considered the worst king in the history of Israel. He turned Israel into a nation of idolaters, offering up on the altar sacrifices to the pagan Canaanite false gods. And the icing on his cake is that he offered up his son to be burned to the Canaanite god Moloch. He was a piece of cake. And yet here he is in the lineage of Jesus. We could go on here, but just look at that list. Friend, if God can use these people, then he can use you. If he can use these people to accomplish his purposes, then he can use you and I. He uses messed up people. And by the way, he doesn't just decide to use them in spite of their sin. Oh, I guess I'll go ahead and use them. No, he has decided before the beginning of time to use them and to use you and I. In his sovereign and divine plan, he has purposed to use sinners all along. And the reality is when God uses messed up sinners like us, who gets the credit in his plan? He does. He gets all the glory. God uses messed up people. But more than that, God saves messed up people. God saves messed up people. Why do you suppose God would ordain that his perfect son, the, the, the preexistent Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ, would come through such a collection of messed up people? Well, because that's who Jesus came to save. When Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners during his earthly ministry, he was asked, why would you, actually his, his disciples were asked, why does your master hang out with tax collectors and sinners, the bad people? And Jesus overhearing them says in Mark chapter 2 verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus came to save messed up people. He came to save sinners like you and I. And we are all of us messed up. As we read from Romans 3 earlier, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But then Romans 6.23, the wages of of sin is death. It still is eternal separation from God. 
But 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, to take on our sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He gets our sin. He gets the judgment of our sin. That's what he paid for on the cross. And in return, through faith and repentance, we get his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our messed upness. He doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, as if it is our very own. So, friend, have you turned to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith to rescue you from what you deserve? And then the third lesson here is that God can accomplish his purposes, his plan. He keeps his promises even through our sin. We mentioned last week that the overriding theme of this final section of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, is the sovereignty of God, that God's in control, that he's guiding and directing and controlling people and creation and even the elements of time and space itself in order to ensure that his perfect and sovereign plan is, in fact, accomplished. That's true in the story of Joseph, as we left off last week, and we'll pick up next week in chapter 39. But it's also true, church, here in chapter 38, in the life and the story of Judah and his messed up family. Theirs in this chapter is a, is a chronicle of their rebellion and, and their immorality and their sin and their utter depravity. And yet we see that God is still accomplishing his purposes and his plan. God didn't cause Judah to marry a Canaanite. In fact, he warned him time and again through his grandfather not to marry a Canaanite. And yet it was through his marriage to a Canaanite that he got his sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. That in turn prompted Judah to get a wife for his first son. And that led him to Tamar, who in God's sovereignty and according to his providence, from the beginning of time, was intended to be in the line of the king. So God doesn't lead Ur and Onan in their wickedness, and yet clearly their wickedness somehow is, is, is a part of and, and under God's overarching plan here, his overarching will, because the result of their wickedness and his judgment of their wickedness it sets the, the, the ground is set for Tamar's extreme measures to have a son. In turn, God doesn't make Tamar dress up as a prostitute. God doesn't tempt Judah with her disguise. They make their own choices to sin against God, and they are responsible for their own sin. And yet somehow God weaves all of this together, even their sin, into a tapestry of redemption. Because you see, God's not just working in their lives, in, 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 the, in the minutia of this story. If we back up 30,000 feet, he's not just working in their lives, he's building a nation. And he's not just building any nation, he's building a nation through which he will bring his son, who will defeat the, and crush the head of the serpent and defeat the power of sin and death for all those who would come to faith in him. He's building a nation that would one day be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, as he had originally promised to Abraham. So friend, don't be discouraged when you think back over your life and the sin and the rebellion that is there. Because though that decision was yours and yours alone, God was working even through that to ensure 
that his plan is accomplished. These three lessons are good news for all of us this morning because all of us are messed up sinners. All of us are. And God can use messed up sinners. And God saves messed up sinners through Jesus. And God's perfect plan will be accomplished even through messed up sinners like you and I. And so what is our call to action from a passage of scripture like this? Once we recognize and become aware that we are messed up sinners. I've got 10 of them here. I'm just going to read them. Don't worry. I know we're running long. Here's our call to action. Number one, admit our sin. Number two, lament it. Have that kind of godly sorrow where you're not just hating the consequences of your sin, but you're hating the sin itself, that it is an offense against a holy God. Hate that sin and, and then in turn confess that sin and repent of that sin. Turn away from that sin. And, and biblical repentance includes faith because you can't turn from something without turning to something. And so repent of that sin and turn to faith in Christ alone. And if you do, then be thankful that Jesus Christ has paid for that sin. That his death on the cross is sufficient to cover that sin. And then number seven, rejoice that he has made you righteous in Christ in spite of your sin. He's made you righteous. He's made you clean before him through Christ. And then fight against that sin. Seek to mortify the flesh with the gospel. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're not held bondage to this thing. So fight against sin. Number 8, hate your sin. Number nine, remember that God is sovereign over your sin. You're responsible for sin. Man is responsible before God for his sin. God doesn't sin. God doesn't tempt to sin. But in his providence, he uses even that for his purposes. That will come into clearer focus as we continue to make our way through the story of the life of Joseph. And then finally, long, church, long for a world free from the very presence of sin. From the bottom line, here is that we're sinners and as sinners our only hope is to run to Jesus our only hope is to come to Jesus and trust in Jesus and to put all of our hope in Christ alone and what he accomplished on the cross for us let's pray friend if you're here this morning and you're you feel as though you've got a huge weight on your shoulders the weight and burden of sin is heavy on you. Recognize there's been a, a wickedness in you. Maybe you can find other people more wicked, but you recognize perhaps for the first time how your sin is an offense against a holy God and you deserve judgment because of that. I hope and pray that the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel is made plain to you this morning that God sent Jesus to rescue sinners like you. Will you place your faith in Christ alone? Stop placing your faith in what you can do to try to please him. Stop putting your faith in religious acts to try to appease his wrath. Instead, trust in Christ alone and what he accomplished on the cross as your only hope, your only and sufficient hope to be rescued from sin, 
given his righteousness and welcomed into the family of God. I pray that you would do that this morning, be reconciled to God through Christ. And then Christian, this morning, if you're burdened under the weight of sin, confess that and turn from that yet again. Rehearse the gospel in your own heart and mind that through Christ, by his grace, you're not judged for that. In fact, that's why Jesus came. He came for sinners like Adam and Eve, like Judah and David and Solomon and Ken and Bodhi and Matt and all of us. He came to rescue sinners. And so thank him. Thank him that you, you stand before him today, not based on your ability to be good, but based on Christ's finished work on your behalf. And then in faith, as we sing, stand and rejoice. Rejoice in the imputed righteousness of Jesus given to you. Do that in faith, praising him for his grace. God, we thank you so much that though we see in this passage the shocking nature of our sin, and Lord, we see ourselves here. We see ourselves and we recognize how wicked we are in our flesh. But Lord, we're reminded of your shocking and amazing and extravagant grace. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for applying that to our lives individually. Help us now to live in light of that gospel. Help us to live in light of that glorious truth until you bring us home. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.